Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Scouser podcast. This is a special episode we got going here. Uh, just because of everything that was going on, we kind of felt like we talked about at the end of the last podcast that it almost warranted its own podcast to talk about this whole Super League thing a bit more in detail to kind of like get some more of the facts out there because there has been a lot of misinformation, knee-jerk reactions, overreactions, all that kind of stuff. So uh, let's get the introductions out of the way. Uh, our, our regular crew, I'm your host, Timushin, as always, and we have Mr. Bickler over here, uh, has left the Origi fan club. Now he's part of the Bamford fan club, right? Patrick <laughs> Bamford's my dude, man. <laughs> to look like, no, we're recording this pretty late and much later than we normally would. It's almost like 11 o'clock central time, so no soup for Paul Bickler tonight. So that was No, but I did wear my Ralph Lauren shirt for Patrick Bamford. Uh, <laughs> very suitable <laughs> and with us our special guest tonight and one of our newest contributors a very familiar name and face to actually any u.s fan for liverpool uh david jennings is with us david welcome to the podcast thank you for having me uh, i'll let you actually i'm sure like i say most of the fans in the u.s especially through usa cop and stuff like that will be familiar with you but i'll kind of let you introduce yourself because obviously you have uh, a lot of like background when it comes to the club and especially fandom in the u.s okay so i'm david jennings i've been um active in the lfc fan community here in the states since about 2006 um I started a uh, Facebook page called um, Through the Storm, and that actually originated as an ESPN sign-in, and then it's just sort of grown into all sorts of things. Um, from that, I started doing vlogs and participating in podcasts. Um, we started a group five years ago called the USA Cop, which uh, the aim of the USA Cop was to become what American Scouser has become. So when you guys kind of took the lead and went there, I'm like, okay, you know, I need to get in with these guys because they are implementing the vision that I see. So um, that that's a bit about me. And we started um, an official Liverpool supporters branch here in Long Beach um, in 2017. So I divide some of my energies into that. And then I'm writing for you guys. And that's exciting too. So Looking forward to uh, what I can contribute. Oh, that's definitely very exciting for us and anybody involved with American Scouser. So we're definitely delighted to have you on board here. But um, so we're going to talk a lot about the Super League concepts. Uh, we talked mm -hmm. a, about it briefly yesterday. Uh, so I know like Paul overall uh, was kind of like he kind of liked and was for the principal, uh, just not for some of the the format and the execution and things like that. My take on it was uh, that this is more, I guess I didn't overreact as much as some of the people I've seen online because I felt like this was just like a negotiating thing uh, they were using to get a better deal out of Champions League and stuff in the long run. And this thing was never going to happen anyway. So this was literally about 24 hours ago and a lot has changed. But before we went go to what has changed, what was your initial reaction, David, when this first came about? Um, well, the, you know, we've been seeing the chat of this for about three years now. So and um, part of the concept came out in the, the football WikiLeaks uh, when the whole thing blew up with Manchester City and 
um, the way they've been, um, you know, funneling money under various guises into the club. Um, but so some of that came out at that time. Uh, we knew this was something that they actually had put pen to paper on. There was an actual concrete plan to do this. Um, at the same time, they wanted to move UA from more towards their position. That, I believe that was their favoured um, strategy. But in the end, I think it became apparent to them that they were going to, they may have to come out and actually do this. So they actually got liquid capital in place, actually got a, the beginnings of a TV deal in place. Because they realised something, something I said to um, uh, Rich Kramer yesterday, um, I said, you, uh, UEFA are very corrupt, but they're too stupid to be bluffed. And they're actually arrogant beyond words. And they actually had to be prepared to go through with this. So you had to move from just having a concept like we could do this to no, we're actually going to do it. And it's sort of like pointing a gun at somebody and say, you know, if you don't do this, I'm going to shoot. Well, it doesn't mean anything if they don't believe you're actually going to pull the trigger and if you don't have bullets in the gun. So they had to go that far. And with the, the way they were going to introduce the new Champions League concept, which was absolutely horrible, um, I think they just got to the point where they said, well, we're going to have to step out and do this. And so it was kind of rushed out at the last minute, I think, even though they had years old plans. But um, I think they felt that the, the new concept that was going to be introduced for 2024 was just too unacceptable to them. And they were going to have to try and move the goalposts in another direction. And that was the shocking part of it. So, like, Paul, I know you were talking about, you know, not liking the formats and stuff like that. But more of the announcements and how poorly it was passed on and how they kind of like to put the fans on the same side as UFA instead of, you know, having them on their side. So what? why do you think that came about? Because like David says, this has been talked about i mean this whole super league thing we talked about for like a decade i think you know like it come pops up mm -hmm. and then he's talked about it disappears comes back and stuff like that so paul like why do you think it was i mean i understand why it was rushed like david says but why rush so poorly i don't know i wish i had the answer to that the only thing that i can think is that if they <clears throat> consulted fan bases and fan support groups that your element of surprise is totally gone you know, if this is something that you're going to spring on UEFA in, in, in you can't consult everyone's opinion on it. Um, however, I think the way that they chose to unveil it in terms of where they chose to put the primary focus on was completely, um, completely wrong. I think it was just, I, I really don't get it because like we talked about this earlier, like, they put a lot of the focus in unveiling these plans on the fact that it was going to be 15 teams that, you know, were there and didn't have to make it there on performance merit and that there were going to be this new structure of 20 teams broken down to, you know, groups of 10 that would play each other home and away and then have a go straight into quarterfinals. And like, I don't think that like that approach to me, is you're immediately hitting on sore points that you know is going to upset fans. And like, so for me, I wouldn't have focused on the format. I would have focused on the reason that there is this shift in general. Like, and I don't understand, I don't understand why the execution wasn't based 
uh, more around the reasons for the shift. Um, because what you did is you did alienate and upset a, 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 a lot of, a, a huge amount of each club's fan base. Um, you know, we talked about how some of those supporters are going to be up against ownership anyway, but like this, this sort of just sort of flamed that in the, in the way that it was delivered, in my opinion. Do you think that would have made a difference, David, in terms of how fans view it? If they came out and said, hey, we're getting screwed on money, so we're going to have to do something else. And this is what we came up with. And then almost um, like slowly injected the facts about, you know, well, no relegation well, and stuff thing, like that. that. They probably needed to, as you're saying, slowly inject the facts. <laughs> and maybe if they had done it that way, maybe if they could have rewound this about three months and said, and began a sort of drip, drip, drip of information, because hindsight's always twenty twenty. But um, to go back approximately that length of time and say, look, this is what they're considering. We don't like it. We don't like how corrupt UEFA is. We don't like how they're running the system. We don't like how many boring Champions League games there are. We really want, want to spice this up. We really want to make it more interesting. We push the idea much more of, you know, just imagine, you know, you know, Bayern Munich against Barcelona this week and, uh, you know, Liverpool against Real Madrid next week and, and Man City against Juventus next week. And if they could have won it from that perspective, then maybe the idea of going with what they wanted to do would have been much more palatable. Um, so, yeah, I'm... But the way it was introduced very suddenly, it was like the, just the gut reaction. And I'm trying to test my reactions online. And one of the big sticking points, I know Paul brought it up yesterday, was, you know, the idea of, you know, 15 clubs that couldn't be relegated and basically no sort of up and down system other than a few clubs being invited in each year. And that just cut against too many people the wrong way. And I think maybe they needed to revisit that idea. And maybe they still will. I don't know if you guys have seen the statement that's come out like in about the last four hours or so. So this is from, um, I'm just looking at this on my computer now. You know, the European Super League is convinced that current status quo of European football still needs to change. So this is still the existing, the remaining six clubs in this are still putting out statements and still saying, you know, we're proposing a new European competition because the existing system does not work. Yeah, this is what probably what they should have been saying three months ago and making that case at that point. Now they've kind of, you know, overshot the target and they've got people feeling sorry for UEFA, which is almost, I didn't think was possible, but uh, there we have it. Um, but yeah, now they're starting to outline what they're trying to accomplish with their proposals. And maybe they can kind of dial this back and recover it, but it's it's going to have to come, be done from in a, probably in a much more open way now. And they're going to have to win people over to the whatever their ideas are. What was the rush? I guess that's the part that I, especially since you, you know, 
we didn't approach the fans. And like Paul was saying, you know, why do you think, Paul, we they needed that surprise thing? I mean, this thing is not kicking up for three years. Why not let UFA come up with their statement on how they're going to do the Champions League and then come back and say, hey, this is why this sucks. They're going to do all this. We're not going to get anything out of it and take their time with it. I mean, initially I was like, oh, they're trying to do a premature one and start the negotiations going in their favor. But why not wait? So I think... <clears throat> from my perspective, I think the reason they did that is because with the element of surprise, when you have that many teams involved and all these plans in place, like David said, with the beginnings of t- TV negotiation, uh, banks funding things, when you have all that in place and you have a, a, a like a supposed locked in format for this and you release all that information overnight, I think it makes the idea that you're going forward with this a lot more believable and a lot more convincing to a UEFA who would have, uh, you know, if you would have basically slowly trickled this information and said, Hey, we're going to go through with this would have had time to sort of like, I think they wanted UEFA to feel that kind of mad scramble and we're hoping that they would get either some sort of offer or movement from UEFA um, or that it would just hit them a little bit harder and, and make it seem a little bit more convincing. I think it backfired in the, in the fact that like a lot of fans felt like they lost their club overnight in sort of a coup. Um, and it was a coup, but it not in the way that fans feel it was. It was a coup to sort of seed power over from UEFA, who is skimming 50% off the top and has absolutely zero transparency. Um, and then just unfairly dividing the money equally amongst teams that aren't bringing equal revenue to the table. And so I think that was how they felt it. And fans felt it was a coup in the fact that owners were just ripping the soul out of their clubs for uh, guaranteed money going forward. Yeah. And it, I think because um, you know, they were ready to put pen to paper to stop this week for what was going to happen in 2024. And I think the, the, um, Big 12 clubs were at the point where like, we have to act now, do something now, or this is going to get signed. And then it's going to be like another three years down the road. Basically, they're going to have, they would have to sign up to it and commit to it. And then they're in the current structure till 2027. Um, and I think that's was part of the reason they decided they had to act so quickly. So, I mean, obviously now we know they kind of rush this thing, throw everything out there, and instead of like injecting it slowly, they almost like highlight the worst parts <laughs> specifically yeah. instead like compared to opposite. But uh, let's say they did it right in terms of as right as they could have in terms of the presentation and stuff like that. Do you think it would have made a difference, David? Because I get the sense that it was going to have a backlash regardless just because a lot of fans, especially for, you know, like a club like Liverpool have still have the, you know, the, I guess the romantic concept of, you know, football being just being football, not money and stuff like that. Yeah. It was going to get a backlash, no doubt. And they'd anticipated that. In fact, some of the, the leaked documents that them um, unedited code, that the Guardian found on the website actually revealed that they anticipated some kickback. Um, so they probably could have lessened it, but ultimately I'm not sure if they could have stopped it. And a lot of the intervention, you got to understand it, it wasn't just how hard the fan groups push back, but um, you got immediate pushback from the Premier League. You got immediate pushback from the Prime Minister. 
Um, when it starts going to that level, where you know Boris Johnson is making a statement about it, and they're like, you know, holy crap, you know, he's starting to talk about, oh, we don't know if we're going to let them host games in Britain and things like that. Um, and I think the the English clubs had to, probably not anticipating that much pushback, had to take another harder look at it. So all of that was probably going to happen anyway. I may have played out over a slightly longer period um, if the introduction had been over a longer period. But yeah, um, eventually I think the, the, the feeling was, no, we're, we're just not okay with this the way it is. One thing I wanted to kind of have you talk about is the fact that this has been coming for a long time. I mean, the mm -hmm. whole, you know, the birth of Champions League was almost, how should I put it, almost like delayed it a little bit, perhaps, before it came. It was like, how about this? You know, we give you guys more money this way kind of thing to the top clubs. But, uh, I mean, it's is it going away? Because it doesn't sound like it's going to go away forever. It's just going to go away for another four or five years and come right back out, if that. Because there are still clubs... I mean, aside from the British clubs, those guys are still in there. I would think they're eventually going to back out too because they can have a league with six people. Uh, right. But, I mean, can you talk a bit about, like, the history of, like, how this was coming all along? Well, I mean, it's, it's been, I mean, you go back to the birth of the Premier League when, um, I mean, originally the Football League in Britain was 92 clubs and they all used to divide up the television money. And that situation went on for about 30 years. I'm sure there wasn't much TV money in the beginning, but it became more significant as it went along and sponsors got involved. And the Premier League clubs, of course, generate almost everything. Um, televised sport back in the 70s and 80s was, you know, 95% of it was the first division, and yet all four divisions were sharing in the money. And as the English clubs looked at the foreign models where money was divided up in amongst a much smaller group of clubs. I think they decided us too. So they formed the Premier League with the help of Sky and, and got that going. But I think they, they keep looking at other people dividing up the money that essentially they're making. Let's face it, the Champions League, there's, you know, the 12 to 15 clubs that have been mentioned as, as founding this Super League concept, um, they're really the ones that everybody wants to watch. Nobody's very interested in watching, you know, Atalanta play Bruges. They don't tune in to watch that. They tune in because Real Madrid are playing or Juventus or PSG or Bayern or, you know, Man City, Man United, Liverpool, etc. You know, that's who people tune in to see, whether they're playing each other or playing somebody else. Um, so they're the ones that are driving all of the revenue stream. And I think increasingly you've had this battle between um, UEFA trying to wrest the money away from them and distribute it to all their political friends in small places around Europe um, versus the big clubs saying, no, it's our money and, and we want it. And, and, and trying to bring it back to themselves. So there's constantly been um, re-evaluations as to how the format and the money would be divided. And more and more, the larger clubs have looked at the concept of saying, well, you know, why don't we just have the tournament for ourselves? We're the ones that attract everybody and 
we're the only ones that win the games anyway. When you, when you look at who wins in the Champions League, you know, every time you get to the round of 16, it's, I think it was 14 clubs this time from the, from the big four, Italy, Germany, Spain, and England. And it's pretty much the same every time. It was just, and the only reason, the only two clubs that didn't make it, one was Manchester United, and that's because PSG knocked them out. So, you know, they're just looking at um, trying to recuperate the money that they feel they're making anyway. And I think that's it's going to keep coming back to that. I don't see it stopping. This isn't the end of it. And clearly the, the European Super League, the way they're phrasing this statement tonight, it's almost like they're calling the English club winos. And by that, I mean... Um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that from a political statement of rhinos, um, withdrawn in name only. In other words, these six English clubs are really still a part of this. They've offic officially, they backed out. Unofficially, they're still talking and they're still conspiring and they're still trying to find another way to come at this. And I think they'll continue to work together to um, make themselves more significant in the tournament. So, Paul, why do you think the English teams are the ones that obviously faced the biggest backlash and had to back out? And that's only, I mean, not only like Liverpool and stuff. I think that was more expected in terms of like, you know, Liverpool because of its history and stuff like that. But even freaking City, for God's sakes, for example, who I didn't even know they had fans for backlash. So how did that come about? Uh, I mean, just process of elimination. So you got like the German clubs that aren't involved yet. Uh, you've got, and I think they will eventually, no matter what the rule in Germany on the 50 plus one is. You've got PSG who wasn't invited yet. Um, and then you've got the British clubs. I think, <clears throat> I honestly think it's just down to the fact that there's a larger portion of foreign ownership. And so I think the fan backlash was more severe. And I think that the FA has been the, one of the more vocal organizations siding with UEFA in the matter. Um, so I think, I think that's it. Um, I, I suspect David's probably right. I don't think this is the end of it. I, I do. I have a fundamental problem with the majority of our fan base saying they'll never trust FSG again. This was mm -hmm. A complete coup and that this is complete greed because to me it's the opposite of greed i want an ownership group who is not okay with another third-party organization stepping in giving 50 percent off the top without any sort of transparency i want an ownership group that wants to go and recoup money that's owed to the club to reinvest back into the team because i think that's the problem how do you continue to add fixtures and compound a, a calendar year year after year like UEFA is doing and then evenly split amongst all the teams but make it harder for a lot of these teams to compete you've got four spots in the EPL the most competitive league in the world and they're getting they're, they're getting the same money as as PSG or you or or you know Bayern or any of these teams where it's really a two horse one horse race um, it doesn't make any sense to me uh, and I understand where they're coming from. I think the the this attempt to usurp UEFA, um, I don't view that as greed. I view I view that as an active move to protect the club. 
Um, and I think it's really sort of sad to me to see this jump to um, basically like shame and ownership group. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that a lot of these fans uh, had their backs up against American ownership and foreign ownership in the EPL to begin with, um, which in Liverpool's case, I think is completely justifiable. But I think over the course of time, FSG has proven that they have the club's long-term best interest at heart. And nobody wants to hear that now and nobody wants to say that, but I, I, I don't understand how you get from point A to point B as this is just pure power move and greed, uh, no matter what Neville wants to go up and, and, and yell at, you know, from his guy throne doesn't like, you know, like that's hypocrisy to me. And I think that, I mean, my personal take is, and looking from, you know, like outside in, um, I feel like, yes, if the ownership was British, I feel like it, the response would be different and the outrage would not be there as much. Uh, even if people didn't like the format and stuff, it would be the format that's being talked about more as opposed to, you know, like shaming the ownership regarding, you know, whether it's American. I mean, for the American ones, it was more like, oh, here comes capitalism, you know, like they're destroying our game and stuff like that. And, you know, making it more like American sports and stuff, which I don't know, having been in Europe and here, yes, there's a big difference. And I'm not as big of a fan of American sports and the way it's done, this franchise and stuff like that. And I realize FSG has taken some missteps, but to their credits, they have kind of gone back on them and corrected those mistakes. And the rest of the ownership obviously is like, you know, oil money and stuff like that. So there's a lot of existing distrust there. And obviously it affects her right away. And whatever they did was going to get the backlash regarding, I feel like even if they did this properly, they were going to get a backlash. So David, do you think if the ownership was local, let's say, would the focus be more on actually the format and, Hey, how come there's no relegation? Let's fix these things. Or Uh, once money is involved, everybody's already up in arms. It would help if it, particularly when you're saying local, because you have to understand Britain has this like big north-south divide where the north is used as more, more socialist, the south is more capitalist. So people in the north don't trust people in the south. Um, but you have, you have kickback from Tottenham too, and they are British-owned. So they're owned by a British investment company, ENIC. Um, so I think it would have... M- probably minimize the effect, but I think it would still have been there. In the end, you know, a lot of the supporters are just, they're militant and they're vocal against money. They don't trust people with money. And that's just something that goes way beyond being Liverpool supporters. You know, it goes into their, you know, political thinking um, and things like that. So uh, in the end, yeah, it w- would have changed the conversation, but the end result of the conversation, I think, would have been the same. And I think it's going to, especially now, moving forward to, I mean, it has become big business. And especially for, you know, mm-hmm. those northern ones you're talking about, I think it's always going to be like an inner battle because these clubs are worth billions. So mm-hmm. it, it, it is already big money. The money is involved. I mean, I read now online everybody's like wants fsg gone and stuff who's gonna come in it's gonna be another rich guy so it's just kind of like hard to understand what fans want in terms of ownership so 
moving forward, so where do you see these? I mean, obviously, 24 hours ago, we saw this going a totally different way. But where do you see it going now? <laughs> and then we'll probably do another podcast tomorrow night. It'll change again. But Paul, so where do you see us going this from this point on? I really don't know. I mean, I think this is, I don't think this is over yet. I, I really don't know. I think there's going to be some twists and turns. Um, there's this huge groundswell of, of people that want FSG out and want to see the club locally owned, not only locally owned, they want to see it supporter owned like Bayern is, which is people that look at the, you know, the 50 plus one rule in Germany. Yes. Technically the fan organization owns 75% of Bayern Munich. But if you actually look at that board, there are some serious issues with key members of that board. And there are key members of that board that are minor minority owners that desperately want the Super League. Like there are members on that Bayern board that really want that. Um, so I don't know that, you know, at the end of the day, it's a two billion. It's a club valued at two billion dollars. Um, so a supporter owned club kind of scares me in the fact that like these are the same people that will whisper and yell and scream FSG out in one sentence. And then the next sentence want to know why we're not buying Mbappe. Like there's a clear disconnect between what fans expect and want in the reality of how business works. And like the fact that they don't even know a simple concept like compounding interest and how that works, like worries me. Now I know like when you get to that bigger level, you're going to have fans that are obviously well-versed in that stuff. I just, I don't know that like, you know, supporter owned, club is the answer and and i don't think that's that's necessarily practical across the board um i don't know where this is gonna go so my answer to the, that very simple question is i don't know um it's it's <laughs> crazy though and people are gonna get super emotional and i'm gonna feel emotionally exhausted after being on facebook every day um and i'm gonna have to pay 60 dollars out of pocket for some sort of therapy um to get <laughs> well i think people do not understand how the like when the club is owned by fans the 50 plus thing goes to i mean there's a lot of politics that becomes i just know from like turkish clubs and that's how they are i mean people think it's not like they go around and ask everybody in town do yeah. we sign mbappe or holland which one yeah. do you guys want I, I think that's the, the picture that everybody it's has not a guy with a notepad at the flat iron asking people <laughs> stuff, you know what i mean like so, and I mean, it suddenly becomes, it's still, you know, one rich guy going against the other rich guy in an election. And at the end of the day, what happens mm -hmm. is a lot of fan groups, it becomes very political because these guys, you know, the rich guy that become, wants to become the owner has mm -hmm. to do side favors for these groups, all kinds of stuff. These guys mm -hmm. get free tickets. I mean, there's all kinds of politics that go to it. It's not you, like you the mean, rosy picture that everybody makes it out to be. You mean, you mean exactly the way you wait for is run. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's why. But how do you see that moving forward? Because that seems to be the disconnects of how people say that, that, you know, oh, you know, we don't need money to succeed, but we should really get somebody like Mbappe next year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, yeah. I mean, where do you see that going forward? Because I really, it's very frustrating to watch fans that cannot kind of like understand that those kind of go hand in hand. And the days right. of putting a couple of young lads out there and telling them to play hard to succeed <laughs> is gone. That's just not going to happen anymore. Yeah, so let's deal with a couple of things here. Um, FSG out is not going to happen. 
Um, no one, no one is sitting on a cool. I mean, Forbes has got Liverpool rated, I think, three or four billion dollars now. No one is sitting on that kind of money, and is just going to swoop in and buy Liverpool. Um, hell, Newcastle have been trying to be sold for about five years now for about one tenth of the price, and you've got this one British gal, Amanda Staveley, who keeps trying to pull off the deal and she, with Arab investors, and she can't do it. Um, so no one is sitting on that kind of money. Well, maybe one or two people are, but whether they want to get into buying a football club is something else. Um, FSG have done a fantastic job at Liverpool. And it's one thing to come in and buy. It's another thing to really work the investment and make it better. And you can see the difference between a passive owner like Stan Kroenke at Arsenal and you're just watching Arsenal just like slide down into mediocrity at the moment because he's very unengaged and he doesn't care because Arsenal is still gaining in value. And really Manchester United are the same way. Um, they're horribly run in a lot of ways, but they're gaining in value so the owners don't care. FSG has made a concerted effort to make the club better and, and you're seeing, you can see the difference. But FSG aren't going anywhere, no matter how some of the fans might want it and say, I can see some of the comments tonight. This is the end for FSG, you know, divorce is in hand. And like, you know, go ahead and divorce them then because you don't have any rights to, to um, alimony. So um, they're not going anywhere. Um, Paul brought up Bayern earlier and the fact that this is something they've always wanted. Bayern have not hidden the fact that they've actually wanted a smaller Champions League. And where I think they'd like to go is probably to 24 teams and to 16 groups. And if they can get the other European leagues on board, and I think this is part of what you saw a few months ago with uh, Project Big Picture, because that would have reduced the Premier League down to 18 teams. So it creates another four European birds. And then you could expand into 16 groups, um, probably with more concentration of, of big four clubs in the big four leagues and um, create more competitive games that are more interesting. And you could still have, that way you could, could have kept the door open to um, clubs from other leagues being able to get in, but at the, at the same time, um, keep a focus on the, the existing large clubs having a very high percentage chance of playing in it each season. So I think what you're going to see, and the German clubs have sort of positioned themselves nicely in this whole thing, in that they stayed out of joining, even though we know they're interested. Um, but now they can almost sort of play peacemaker between UEFA and the Super League clubs and kind of come in and say, well, how about we go here and offer up some sort of compromise. Um, and now that the, the Super League has got its extreme argument out on one side and UEFA's got its position on the other, um, clubs like Bayern and Dortmund may be able to come in and say, hey, how about doing this? And I think you may see a proposal along that line where they say, let's reduce the size of the Champions League. We'll still provide a path in for teams um, say from the Europa League or whatever you want to call the next competition um, to, together with maybe you know five clubs from each of the big four leagues something along those lines and the other possibility might be 
automatic requalification. So if um, you have 16 groups, uh, personally, I would like to see them restricted to the top two going into the playoff format. But then the top four would requalify for next year's tournament. And then the other eight birds would be qualified for from the National Leagues and from the Europa League. So you can see maybe something like that trying to be introduced. And it's they're going to have to move over the summer because now they're waiting to sign TV contracts. Well, not see sign TV contracts. They want bidding on the contracts. And that was due to start in May. Now it's going to get put off. But so I, I expect they'll have some fairly rapid shuttle diplomacy and try and get something in, in place by the end of the summer, at least for the following three years. So we also saw uh, some rumors, some actual, you know, like people leaving some of these clubs, like their managing directors and stuff like that. So Paul, you know, David says FSG is not going anywhere. And I agree. And I really do not want him to go anywhere because who is going to come? Everybody wants somebody out. Be careful what you wish for because mm-hmm. you have someone that's bought this club when nobody else freaking wanted it, first of all, because it was going downhill and downhill fast financially. They saved it from that. They kind of built the club back to being a powerhouse again, won the Champions League, won the title after 30 years. It's how fast we forget. And I understand the missteps, and I understand how those missteps go against maybe some of like the Liverpool culture and stuff. And I don't mean to like say it like I'm diminishing it. I do understand it. But at the same time, I think fans have to understand if these guys are going, somebody else has to come in. But having said that, if FSG would, I would assume, stay as well. Are you on the same page with that, Paul? Or do you expect any changes? No, I don't expect any changes at all for all the reasons we talked about, right? It's just not feasible for for them to to sell. To I, there's just not going to be a buyer, like David said. And I don't I don't think FSG wants out. And if they're not, if they don't want out, they're not going to sell. Like it just it doesn't make sense. I mean, this whole idea of them getting um, selling fractions of of the company and getting you know these deals with Red Bull and stuff that's just part of building valuation. I mean, that's something you do to continue to build value um, with the business. Um, a lot of people see that as a, a, them trying to move out. It's not. It's them building valuation. Um, I agree with you. I, I know a lot of people say if you have this many mistakes, if you make this many missteps, then that's that, that you're kind of showing your true colors, even, even if you kind of correct those missteps and go back. I don't know, man. That, that doesn't feel necessarily fair to me. I think some things – I think there was a genuine uh, naivety um, when they first bought the club and some of the things they did really early days that, that backfired on them. This is a big one, right? I mean, this is a big one. And, and I, like I said, I agreed with this move on principle. The execution was really bad. And, you know, I think it was rushed out and I think it wasn't framed like the optics of it. The thing was not framed in a way where people were going to give it a chance. Um, but I just, I, the amount of grandstanding from fans, especially Liverpool fans about like, I don't know, man, it just doesn't sit right with me. To me, this is a, this was a move to protect the club and to, to sit here and say that it's, it was a cash grab and they showed their greedy colors, blah, 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 should be shamed and all this like super over the top stuff, man. I just think shows a real lack of knowledge on on how businesses are run 
in what football is now. This isn't the fifties, you know, this isn't the Shankly boys. This isn't like the, the game has changed. Um, I, I, I guess I, I, I feel like I've like talked myself out of this all, almost where I'm just like, I don't know how to say it any clearer or any other way. It's just, it feels like this huge rush to, 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 to stand on a soapbox and, and yell down from the rooftop and, and I'm just kind of yeah. over it, frankly, it's going to be a long saga. It's not over. Um, I'm all for whatever it takes to get UEFA out of the picture, essentially. I mean, I am not a huge fan. I mean, hey, we're more, all three of us are probably more old school. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the big money and stuff. Yeah, it does spoil the game and, you know, certain factors of it and stuff like that. Yes, it used to be nicer when the money was not the, the top pot, but it's kind of like part of the game now. And whatever mm-hmm. they got to do to commercialize it i mean i don't know it's you know i know some people do not want any of that commercialization you know in terms of you know i don't know hello kitty and crap like that you know all these little things they do whatever it is that they do to make more money i really don't care whatever it is they do to sell merchandise to bring more revenue to the club i'm all for because i understand that this is a business now and you have to get the financial uh I guess the promise to be able to kind of compete with the other big boys because they are doing the same thing and they're going to bring the money in. And mm-hmm. I just, they've took some sense into why some people kind of like still cannot make that connection between the need for money and, but try to stay small because you cannot have it both. I think it's, it goes way beyond football with most people who are doing that. And it's just something that is ingrained in them that they basically see big money as evil. And so when they see their football club doing something that, you know, handles millions of dollars or massively increases their valuation or something like that, they just instinctively go, Oh, it's a big power grab because I think they, some of them work at companies and they think the same thing of their employers. They just see them as this big behemoth that's just keeping all the money um, and, and paying people as little, as much as, I mean, as little as they can get away with. And it's, it's really the same mentality and, it, and it's, it is their outlook on life that, you know, there are the big people with money and, and then there's the little guy and we're the little guy and we just love our football club and we want it to be um, pure and clean as the, as the wind-driven snow. And that's the way it should be. You know, it should just be for the love of the game. And, and here are these people just trying to make money and make profits. And that is just their outlook on life. And they bring that outlook into supporting Liverpool and they see the ownership and they just instinctively see it the same way. I don't think you're going to change that. I think you're always going to have an element of the fan base that sees, you know, this this big, you know, equity fund that owns the club as as inherently evil. Um, I I don't see a way to change it. I mean, try and educate them, but um, you know, ultimately, I don't think you're going to get very far. And I, and I feel like it will get only worse with the younger generation because I feel like, you know, now, 
these kids. No, I mean the younger generation what is more after like the names and the you know like the superstars and stuff like that is what's really driving sports throughout the world, not only in the US and soccer now as well. And I feel like it's only going to get worse as, you know, like bigger names get bigger and bigger. And obviously this price tags go higher and higher. And speaking of young generation. So, Paul, what did you make of the concept that they were talking about? And I think he I don't know if it was tongue in cheek and I don't know if it was just like throwing different ideas out there to kind of get the conversation going a different way. But something along the lines of like 16 to 24 year olds find the game too long and crap like that so what did you make out of that concept i mean i only read it i like so i i'd like to actually hear the context of it right because i like i want to think that he's joking there right because i mean like here's where i would go with that we need to make the game more accessible for people to get to a game like straight up it needs to be more bring back you know like the the standing room only stuff for the kids and like the cheap tickets in like I, make the games affordable because I think for kids to, to, to love the game and to fall in love with it, they have to have that experience of going and seeing it and, and smelling it and seeing the atmosphere and engaging with it. Right. Because I think things for kids are so interactive now. Right. I mean, you know this, but I've got an 11 year old at home who will sit there and, you know, he'll get on and he's, executing a mission online he's chatting with his friends and he's stuffing his face all at the same time he's doing like three things at, at one time over the course of 90 minutes right so i mean but but that 90 minutes is like he's he's basically doing a, a week's worth of work for most most people in a 90 minute session so like it's got i think with kids we we live in a youtube generation where they can't watch movies anymore because they're used to watching five minute clips on youtube like it's like it has to be an engaging experience. So I think there is some truth to that, right? There's some truth to that. They think everything's a movie trailer. Like, um, but uh, like, so, I mean, I think there is a little bit of truth to that. I don't believe that the game should be shortened. I don't believe that most people want to see the game shortened at all. Even the younger kids. I don't, I don't think that my kids never complain that the games are too long. They complain that it's on. So like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I saw that and I was like, I, I'm assuming he's just trying to cause a distraction and be like, let's talk about this and stuff for a little bit kind of thing. But how about we shorten the game? So <laughs> Super League seems like a good idea now. How about 5v5, guys? See you guys later. Uh, so let me ask you this, Dave. Uh, so... Uh, Heck, I mean, within 24 hours since we last talked about the podcast, unless we do nightly podcasts over here, we're never going to be staying on top of the news. But as this thing kind of like evolves, goes back and forth, obviously still a lot of moving parts. Some teams still on, some of them kind of like you said, outside watching in. Some of them, one foot is still inside the door. They haven't totally closed the door behind them yet and stuff like that. How do you see it affecting the pitch? Uh, we have what, like six, seven weeks left here, right? Uh, how do you mm -hmm. see it affecting the games that, I mean, obviously all the players are being affected. It's not just Liverpool players, but how do you kind of see it uh, playing out? As far as the performances on field? Yeah. I mean, do you see it affecting it at all? Uh, like how? Yeah, I, I, I don't really think so. I think they'll, they'll just put it behind them and, and, and get on with things. In the end, the professional players, they've got their minds set on their careers. I mean, you know, Gini Wijnaldum, who is 99% certain is leaving at the end of the season, um, he's still focused on playing and performing for Liverpool. If he wasn't, he wouldn't be in the side. 
Um, the, the professional players, they'll put it behind them and, and they'll get on with the game. I don't really think it's going to um, distract them or cause the side to fall apart or anything like that. I think the important thing from Liverpool's perspective, the players seem to be pretty unified around what they thought. And that will cause them to play better together. And it seems like Jurgen Klopp, of course, had to be a lot more careful what he said. But it seemed like he was basically where Jordan Henderson was. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the players are pretty unified. And if anything, people bind together in crisis. And I think that the strong professional players, they'll bind together in, in this. It'll probably make them a stronger group. How about you, Paul? Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I'm with David. I mean, I don't think it's going to make a huge impact on the way the games are played. I mean, I think you're going to see uh, you'll see some noise before games from fans, you know, supporters at, at certain stadiums. But like, I think for the most part, um, that's likely going to die down and die down pretty quickly. Um, people have short attention spans, man. I mean, we've seen this is obviously the biggest shakeup that we've seen, but we've seen things go over really poorly with FSG and us do little mini boycotts and strikes and pull banners and all that stuff before. And it's back to normal business in two weeks. Right. I mean, so Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a long saga. We're going to see what happens with this thing. I think it'll get kind of pushed to the back burner uh, in terms of the, the sort of the, the flashpoints. But I don't see it really affecting players. Um, But I do think some of the comments were interesting about, uh, you know, my boy Patrick Bamford hit on this really quickly, but I think it's interesting <laughs> that like, we, we were very easily, we did see that UEFA can swiftly and concisely act on an issue when it needs to, right? So where was it with <laughs> right? Like that was the point made. And I think that's very, that's very, very fair. When, when something threatened the, the pockets, they were very quick to, to be a unified uh, organization and swiftly mm-hmm. come out. So uh, hopefully they can do that with other other issues that really directly affect the game as well. Yeah, but there weren't there weren't any filibuster rules that day, were they? It was like you know <laughs> yeah. we're acting. <laughs> and honestly, when I saw your boy Bamford talk about that, first off, I thought of you, uh, and then second of all, I was I thought the same thing not only for you know UFA and Premier League, but for the freaking them, like fans themselves as well. If everybody showed this outrage for sure, or you know, like like the racism in the game and all the stuff that happens in the game that we're trying to get out of, uh, we'd probably go a lot more, a lot further. Whereas, I mean, everybody went apeshit within 24 hours, whereas you just do not see that. And with another I think issue. that I think that he was delivering a message to the fans as well. I don't think that was directly aimed at UEFA. I think that was a, a very smartly word. Listen, like. The dude turned down a scholarship to attend Harvard Business School. He's a smart guy. Speaks four languages fluently, plays four instruments, comes from a family that wears a lot of Ralph Lauren, easily can sneak out the window, put a T-shirt on, and hang with the commoners on the other side of the tracks. He's a good guy. Man, Divac Origi would be embarrassed of how you jumped off his bandwagon and jumped on Bamford. <laughs> he would be embarrassed, and he should be. But, hey, I'm all for you, man. You just got to just keep going with the Bamford run because I don't think Divac is going to be here any longer. Uh, so speaking of that, uh, 
I don't know about you guys. I mean, this last three, four days has been like draining and exhausting talking about stuff. That's not really football, which I would rather much talk about. So real quick, let's finish with that for our sanity. Uh, David, how do you see the top four chances, uh, especially at the Leeds game? Meanwhile, there was a game today that I don't, I, I don't know if anybody even realized that Chelsea played and lost the point, which kind of like helps our cause, uh, especially mm-hmm. you know those guys kind of like playing each other and stuff like that down the road here. Mm-hmm. How do you see our top four chances? I know we're in the Champions League still. So. <laughs> I've got my um, piece coming out. I think it is it tomorrow, Paul. It comes out. Yes. Okay, so. Um... I'm going to ask, and this is going to may surprise some people. It's going to depend on the health of um, Phillips and Kabat. If we can keep those two health, uh, those two and Fabinho and Milner, I'm going to say those are the four key guys. If we can keep those guys playing. I think we can keep winning. And um, read my article that I wrote that's going to come out on the website tomorrow um, for for more details. But I absolutely think we're capable of of uh, running the table. If we can keep the remaining players healthy, with the possible exception of the Manchester United game, and if we can do that, because everybody else is still playing consistently, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the table now with two points behind Chelsea and three goals. So, you know, top four is very, very possible, and we're playing well enough to do it if if we've got all the players in that we need. So, I'm I'm confident we can still make the Champions League spot. If not, we'll. Um, we'll be in the Europa League and hopefully we won't slip and end up in the new third tournament, which will be really horrible. I was going <laughs> to say, do you see that as making a big difference in terms of what we do in the summer? Is it going to be like a night and day difference in terms of, you know, like the business that's done in summer in terms of like adding to the squad or whatever that is going to be done, us being in uh, Champions League compared to Europa? No. Um, really? I think I think they're going to address the needs of the side regardless I mean, it, it's possible it would affect a player that will be signed in that they may hesitate about not going to a Champions League side. But I think at this stage, players still view Liverpool as a Champions League material team, uh, even though they may not be in it this season, um, next season, I mean. Um, they still view it as a club they want to go and play at. They still view it as an elite club. So... You know, I don't think you lose that in one season. Who's in danger of losing that is Arsenal. Um, but Liverpool are not um, in danger of losing that at this point. So, no, I think they're going to go and look for some sort of um, way to strengthen the midfield because clearly we're too thin on players who can control possession. And um, then they're going to continue to look at centre-back options. Um I don't actually know, although I'm a big fan of it, moving Trent Alexander-Arnold further up the field, I don't know if Klopp's a fan of it. Um, If he is, if he's seriously thinking about it, they may look at going out and seeing who's available at right back. So those are the um, possible changes I'd see in the summer. How about you, Paul? Any parting thoughts? I mean, you know me, I'm the less optimistic one at all times. Uh, You just found that out yesterday, yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I. So my thing is, is that we're counting on everyone else to be inconsistent and we're counting on us who have also been inconsistent to suddenly be consistent. Um, And for me, like there is no signs that any of the 
things that have driven us mad all year are going to really change, including pushing fab back to the back floor. Um, so like for me, it's like, I, I don't know, man, like it's still a team without a spine and it's still, still a team that looks physically fatigued and mentally exhausted. And I worry that this is a tailspin that is not going to be pulled out of until there's a significant period of rest for that team. Uh, that's kind of where I lay. Now, um, I think David's right. The only fixture when you look at it, it looks like it could be a potential hangup is United, but they do have the ability to run this thing. I just don't, man, I don't know, man. I, I don't see, I haven't seen, we see a game that gives us hope where we look really, really good. And then the next game we come out flat, lethargic, lose it in the first half, never get it, find our footing, come on late in the last 15 minutes of the second half and wonder where that was the entire 90 minutes. So I, I am less optimistic for sure. Well, this is really freaking weird, but twice in a row, I'm going to be the optimistic one probably. I don't know what the hell is going on, but uh, I really <laughs> think, I think the fact, the only thing that I have, I agree with what you're saying in terms of like, we haven't seen anything. We're probably just more, uh, making those assumptions off of muscle memory and kind of like what David says in terms of like, you know, keeping those guys healthy. Um, I don't know about Miller, definitely Fab and those two center backs so that Fab can be in midfield and those center backs can be back there. I think the thing that I feel like we have going for us is just by experience when Klopp has a full week to prepare for a game, the team is always ready and good to go and they perform well. And with, unfortunately, being out of the Champions League, you're going to have, you know, a week for each league game to be able to prepare for your opponents. And I think, you know, that will give the legs we need. Because even against Leeds, you saw that we just got tired and could not keep our own, you know, style of game going uh, because we had a Champions League and stuff midweek. And, you know, like Milner can only go... Uh, I mean, the guy is like an energizer bunny, but he can only go for so long too. And I don't think we're going to have that issue now with us only playing once a week. At least that's my optimistic thought. So I'm going to keep the trend going here. Maybe I'll just be an optimistic person from now on. I have you doubted, but um, no, <laughs> maybe we'll sign Bamford. Uh, so <laughs> in the off season, <laughs> David, any parting thoughts for us? No, I think I think we've covered everything. Yeah, so thank you for joining us and looking forward to our piece tomorrow. Once again, it's a delight to have you on American Scouser and I, like you're like a well-respected and well-known guy in the uh, U.S., the Rupal fandom. So it's excellent to have you on board and have your pieces. So uh, kind of looking forward to the one tomorrow. Uh, we actually had like a Rich Kramer piece, a humor piece coming up, but by the time it came out, the entire world changed. So I think he's going to have to modify it now. <laughs> I'll, I'll, have you, I'll have you know, Jennings, he never said these nice things about me when I joined. Well, there's a, there was a reason for that, Jennings. <laughs> and I think it's pretty obvious. But, okay. Well, thank you guys for all for listening. Uh, and once again, Dave, Paul, thank you for joining me. Uh, we'll see you guys again next Monday, hopefully after we beat up on Newcastle. And we'll talk about Bamford and Paul's soup and all that good stuff. See you guys next week. <laughs>